0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more Half-Assed History this week on the agenda, giving a chat about the Mughal Empire, one of the greatest and wealthiest empires. In human history, the Mughal Empire ruled over much of the Indian subcontinent and some of its surrounds uh, from the mid 16th century through to well, depends depends who you ask, really, because the Mughal Empire, after having an unprecedented golden age throughout the uh, the 17th century, it was it was one of the richest realms on the face of the planet, enormously prosperous. But after this from the 18th century onwards, it went into a slow and steady decline for about a century and a half for, uh, for a range of reasons that, of course, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get across uh, throughout the episode. Um, but ultimately, uh, it was, I would say more than anything else, the British colonisation of the Indian subcontinent uh, via the British East India Company that saw the final collapse of the Mughal Empire. There were lots of other things that, that caused the decline of the empire, but the ultimate collapse was the, uh, was the British East India Company um, but as I say, even by the time the British East India Company was uh, was putting down the Indian Rebellion of 1857, uh, the Mughal Empire was a, a shadow of its former self. However, in, in its heyday, at its peak, oh boy, the empire was grand, it was expansive, it was, it was extremely rich, as we'll talk about. The Mughals brought their Persian culture with them as they conquered the subcontinent and the influence of Indo-Persian culture can still be seen today across modern-day India from architecture to, to festivals to even food. Um, and, and, and the time that the Mughal Empire spent ruling the subcontinent was uh, was enormously impactful on the overall history of India, a conquering force that arrived, set up shop and, and remained in charge for a good long while. It was It was bound to have a historical impact. And, of course, brought both good and bad to India and its people, as we'll talk about. Um, and the long and the short of it is the Mughal Empire remains, to this day, a critically important part of the history of India. Now, it's going to be a long one today, uh, going to be a very long one, as we attempt to power through over three centuries of history in uh, in just one single episode. But there are there are a couple of things I want to mention before we start. Firstly... I want to thank the, the so very many alert listeners who have requested the Mughals as a topic over the years. Uh, Kevin Wang, Abhi, Taha Zubairi, Aditi, Konabray, Saksham Gulati, uh, Shivam Jaku, and, and Shamna Sanam. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, as well as being uh, very, very thankful. I'm also apologetic. I'm sorry it took me so long to get to it, but uh, this was a, a very long and very involved and therefore quite intimidating topic to tackle. There was just so much to, to, to try to get across. So I hope I've done all right. I know I've left heaps out, but we would be here for weeks otherwise. Um, and it seems like there's a, a decent bit of interest in Indian history. Uh, it isn't something that we've, uh, we've gotten into too heavily on the show overall. I'd like to change that. So by all means, keep those topic suggestions coming in. Any other ideas for, for Indian history would be absolutely terrific. And and the second thing I want to I want to say as well is it's not just these alert listeners that I'll be thanking in this episode. Um, I've received a, a huge a huge amount of correspondence from some of Half Ass History's top listeners on Spotify from this year. So I want to have a chat about that. Have a chat about Spotify Wrapped at the end of the of the end at the end of the episode. So if you're one of those uh, those long listeners, stick around, stay through to the end, get that minute count up even further because. Uh, it was it was great to hear from people who have been uh, really getting stuck into half us history this year. Anyway, let's get underway here. So so much to get across today, so let's get into it. Here we go. Three hundred years of Mughal history. Off we go. Going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to fourteen eighty three to the birth of the founder of the Mughal Empire, a bloke by the name of Babur. Babu was born as Zahir ad-Din Muhammad on the 14th of February, 1483 in the Timurid Empire, an Islamic Persianate turco mongol empire centered in modern-day Iran. It spanned an area from Turkey all the way across to Pakistan. So how is that for for some cultural syncretism? We've got an islamic Persianate turco mongol empire that that spans a huge amount of uh, of Central Asia. And uh, this empire was founded by a bloke named Timur, uh, hence the Timurid Empire, also known as Tamerlane, uh, the, the the last great nomadic conqueror, uh, who, despite maybe not being a direct descendant, he portrayed himself as a essentially a 14th century Genghis Khan while setting up his empire. Anyway, Babur, he was uh, Timur's great 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 grandson, and he grew up as uh, as the son of a Timurid governor, an emir, uh, a position that he then went on to inherit when he was just a little kid, and as a young fella. Um, Babu had mixed results in fighting rebels who weren't fans of his work as an emir, uh, while also attempting wars of conquest to expand his domain himself. Now, these mixed results, as you might expect, were initially mixed between uh, victories and defeats, but in time they became mixed between defeats and even worse defeats and by the time we get to the 16th century things have completely fallen apart for babur more widely the timurid empire is uh, is kind of on the verge of collapse here it's involved it's engulfed in civil wars and, and conflicts like the ones that babur was involved in um and a new power was rising in iran to sort of uh, unseat, displace the Timurid Empire, the Safavid Empire. So it's not a good time for Babur, it's not a good time for the Timurids more broadly. And in 1507, the Timurid Empire collapsed once and for all. This time, Babur um, had about as much land to his name as a, as an avocado toast munching elder millennial. And so uh, wisely, he decided to ally himself with the Safavids, the, the new power in Iran. He accepted their suzerainty as he was pushed out of his an- ancestral homelands. Uh, and finally set up shop in Kabul in, in modern-day uh, modern Afghanistan in 1515. And uh, in doing so, he gained a bit of, uh, of structure and stability to his reign. And uh, over the next decade or so, or so, from 1515 onwards, Babur did something, uh, something very important, something that would uh, give rise to the Mughal Empire as one of history's famous so-called gunpowder empires. He modernised his army with the latest in, can you guess gunpowder technology. He armed his troops with matchlock weapons and trained them in the use of cannon artillery. And this meant that when Babu's appetite for conquest emerged once again in the mid-1520s, he was in a very good position to expand his domains. However, rather than go back and fight over territory in Central Asia, Babu decided instead to push eastward towards the subcontinent. And this proved to be a good move, for him at least, as it was a decision that would ultimately lead to his establishment of the Mughal Empire. Babur's force, uh, forces expanded south and east from Kabul uh, towards what is today Pakistan and India, specifically to Punjab, northwest of the city of Delhi. And these campaigns went a lot better for Babur than uh, some of his previous ones. No more mixed results for him. And in 1526, he won the decisive Battle of Panipat against the Delhi Sultanate. Babur's decision to embrace the power of gunpowder meant that he was able to crush his enemies, um... The Delhi Sultanate's leader, Sultan Ibrahim Lodi, was was killed during the Battle of Panipat. And so Babur and his his conquering armies, they seized power over the lands that had formerly been ruled by the Sultanate, which, as I say, was crushed by this invading Mughal force. And this was what marked the beginning of the Mughal Empire, uh, a term, Mughal, that originates with the Arabic and or Persian corruption of the word Mongol. Now this is very interesting because remember Timur cast himself as a successor to Genghis Khan, and Babur is a direct descendant of Timur. So now with the establishment of the Mughal Empire, we've got essentially what is a bloody neo-Mongolian empire on our hands here. So the the, the historical reach of the Mongols extremely lengthy, perhaps a, a fair bit more than uh, a fair bit more so than old mate Genghis Khan. Episode 206, 207, get across it. May have thought when he kicked things off all this Although then again. Maybe not. Maybe that's exactly how we thought things would go. Anyway, with the empire established officially in 1526, Babur worked to consolidate his rule in the subcontinent. The Delhi Sultanate had not been in good nick before the Battle of Panipat. to be honest. There was all sorts of internal instability. There were rebels, there were insurgents, uh, ambitious nobles and warlords. It, it really wasn't going well. And now, even with the Lodi Dynasty out of the way, it wasn't quite as simple as Babur just picking up where his defeated foes left off. Babur had to go after all of his, uh, his political and military rivals throughout this region who were all seeking a, a slice of the pie for themselves. They're all hoping to uh, to gain to fill some of the power vacuum that was left behind by the collapse of the Delhi Sultanate. However, the superior weaponry and advanced military tactics of Babur and, and the Mughals was uh, more than sufficient to dispatch enemies like, for, for instance, the Rajput uh, Confederacy, Uh, This was one of the most notable, one of the stronger opponents that uh, Babur had to face off against in in consolidating his rule. And the ultimate defeat of the Rajput Confederacy in 1527 really did put an end to any doubt as to who would be ruling northern India from here on out. The Lodi Dynasty had fallen, the Rajput Confederacy had fallen, and so Babur was largely uncontested as he moved his capital to the Indian city of Agra. However, this would not last. As is so often the case in the wake of a conqueror like this, it wasn't long before the disgruntled uh, conquerees, I guess, began to make a nuisance of themselves. And Babur very foolishly complicated this critical period of of imperial consolidation that his, uh, his new empire was undergoing by, in 1530, dying. Very foolish of him indeed. It left this brand new and very unsteady realm to his son, Humayun. Now... This will test long-time listeners of the show. We've actually already met Humayun at one point, and I wonder if you can remember where, and and more specifically, why we met him. I'll give you a little hint here. It didn't uh, didn't so much have to do with anything he did in life, but more had to do with his death, because... Yes, that's right. Humayun was featured in episode 174, History's Weirdest Deaths Part 2. Get across it. Humayun died after tripping over his robes while trying to pray with an armful of books on a flight of stairs, a deadly combination that ended the life of the second Mughal emperor. Uh, But I'll tell you this, he had a busy time of it before his untimely death, uh, because first he had to deal with mutinous brothers who all wanted their own share of power inherited from their dad. Um, And then to make things worse, other external forces are also contesting his rule, most notably Sher Shah Suri to the east in Bihar along the Ganges River. Humayun went off to fight Shah Suri, uh, which gave his enemies in Gujarat, different enemies, the perfect opportunity to rise up against him. So now he's playing bloody whack-a-mole. And while he did hold on for 10 years with new and old enemies cropping up all over the place to challenge him, eventually it became too much. In 1540, Humayun lost the Battle of Kanaosh, which forced him into exile and brought the Mughal Empire to an end. So that was that. Thanks for playing, everyone. It was a fun 14 years. Shah Suri took power, he had fled to the Safavids, taking refuge back in Persia, and the Mughal Empire was down. But as you can probably tell by the significant number of minutes still to go in this podcast, it was not out because there are a couple of things that happened in the coming years that resulted in the Mughal Empire returning to power in northern India. Firstly, uh, Humayun's time at the Safavid Imperial Court was very well spent indeed, as he used it to establish and cultivate good relations with the Safavids, who uh, went on to support Humayun in his later campaigns. And this made a lot of sense. Uh, they share, they, had a, they had a shared um, cultural and religious background. The, the Safavids were also uh, Islamic Persians. And so, uh, you know, they had a lot in common with, uh, with Humayun and, and the people that followed him. Secondly... Uh, just like Sher Shah Suri died only a couple of years into his reign, and his heirs then had to slog through the infighting and the rebellions and the circling external threats, just like Humayun had. And this political chaos that engulfed India, this was the perfect opportunity for Humayun to gather his forces, bolstered as he was by the Safavids, and he began a campaign of reconquest back into the subcontinent. Humayun took full advantage of all the turmoil to the east, he uh, he took the huge army that he had raised in Persia. Again, these were people who had a lot in common with this bloke, Humayun, from a cultural or religious uh, standpoint. And with this army, he marched off and, and laid waste to all the forces fighting for dominance back over in India. In June 1555, Humayun's forces fought the decisive Battle of Surhind, beating Sikandar Shah Suri, the fifth ruler to have seized power after the death of Sher Shah Suri. They got through him very quick. Uh, and in doing this, he took back the empire that he'd lost. So after a brief intermission, the Mughal Empire was back and would rule much of the, su- the Indian subcontinent for the next... Um, mm, difficult to say exactly. Uh, 150 years, for sure. I can give you a century and a half. That's no problem at all. We can, we, we can lock that away. That's that's safe. 150 years, yes, definitely. Uh, beyond that, it mm, gets a little trickier. The Mughal Empire existed on paper until the 1850s. Did they rule much of India for this time? Were they very much de facto sovereign independent rulers? Not so much. We'll get into it properly. We'll talk about all that in due course. But for now, it's time to talk about the uh, the Mughal Empire approaching its Golden Age. And this Golden Age was brought about, funnily enough, by... The death of on this poor bloke, right? He uh, he reconquered his old regime in uh, in 1555 and then died the next year. He met his end at the bottom of a staircase just one year after re-establishing his empire. This poor bloke, he, this poor bastard just couldn't catch a break. Well, no, actually, sorry. Um, he caught a few too many breaks, really, uh, certainly when it comes to his bones, anyway. But no, look, for the Mughal Empire overall, the death of Humayun, it wasn't a bad thing at all. Uh, This bloke, he he did his best, but he wasn't cut out for greatness. Not like his son, Akbar, who is known to history as Akbar the Great. Uh, As his epitaph indicates, he was indeed cut out for greatness, perhaps the greatest of all the Mughal emperors. Akbar completely transformed his young realm, he turned it into one of the biggest political, and economic powerhouses of the early modern period. Akbar was just a teenager when he took the throne. Uh, his initial reign, uh, reign was overseen by a regent, Ram Khan, who had been invaluable to Humayun during his, uh, his campaign of reconquest. And he was just as useful for young Akbar. He did a better job than anyone else in recent history of consolidating power over the Indian subcontinent and helped the young emperor really get off to a, to a flyer. As uh, as the leader of this this nascent regime with the aid of Bayram Khan, and then once the training wheels came off uh, in his own right, Akbar revolutionized the Mughal Empire, not just uh, not just setting it on a path to greatness, but also walking it down this path himself. The Mughal Empire was was in a pretty good spot when Akbar took the throne. All the political instability and infighting had had just more or less run out of steam. Um, Humayun's return to India was very well timed. No one really had any legs left to keep running. Uh, And with the backing of the powerful Safavids, the Mughals under Akbar were properly able to entrench themselves because there just wasn't anyone really to meaningfully stand in their way. And interestingly... This Safavid backing had important consequences for the culture of this new realm. It meant that the Mughal Empire had a distinct Persian and Islamic influence, as the ruling class and the military that supported it were either of Persian origin or had strong cultural ties to the empire out west. you might think that this would be the source of tension and strife between the rulers and the ruled, these vast differences in, in, in culture culture and, and religion. You know, these foreigners essentially coming in and taking over the joint with their strange and unfamiliar ways. And look, I'm not gonna make some big sweeping statement and pretend that it all went perfectly, certainly in time it didn't. But I will say this. One of Akbar's greatest successes as emperor ...was the way that he integrated the various cultures and religions of his realm, both old and new. Akbar, a Muslim, he ruled over vast numbers of non-Muslim people. And again, the people at the top end of town in terms of political power were generally Persian Muslims. However, Akbar, very wisely indeed did everything he could to break down cultural and religious barriers in his young realm. He enforced uh, he enforced policies of religious tolerance. He didn't impose jizya, the uh, the tra- traditional islamic tax that is uh, usually levied on non uh, non-muslims. Uh, he didn't impose jizya on his citizens. He explored ways to syncretize various religions in his realm. And additionally, and very importantly, he didn't discriminate against non-muslims when it came to high-level political and military appointments. This meant That throughout his regime, throughout the bureaucracy of the Mughal Empire, there were Hindus in high-ranking positions that allowed them to properly represent the interests of people just like them. The the people who had been conquered by the Mughal Empire. They were integrated into the power structure of of this new empire. So in other words, Akbar didn't allow his perso islamic roots to run roughshod over the culture of the people that the Mughal Empire had, had conquered. And this led to the rise of Indo-Persian culture. How important is this this cultural synthesis? Absolutely, colossally important in my view, at least. Not only did it enable the the Mughal Empire, once properly re-established, to flourish, it also resulted in some of the most magnificent cultural works on the face of the earth. The best example of which is almost certainly, I would say, the Taj Mahal, a magnificent example of Indo-Persian culture, but we'll chat more about that in a little bit. Anyway, Akbar, he did a great job of establishing a peaceful and tolerant and prosperous realm. Now, obviously, conquest is, is an ugly business at the best of times, but Akbar, he really did seem to work tirelessly to improve the lives of all of his subjects, not just the ones that had uh, traditional cultural religious links with, with him personally. His realm expanded as time went on, in many cases through pure diplomacy, although he did send off the troops a couple of times here and there as well. But um, quite aside from cultural and religious concerns, he cleverly orchestrated political marriages between the rulers that he'd conquered to safeguard against future conflict and, and increase the stability of Israel. And all of this was underpinned with a strong, centralised government that had an efficient bureaucracy to administer the empire as it grew. And due to the realm security, due to its stability, due to the relative peace that Akbar brought about due to his policies of cultural and religious tolerance, due to this strong government, the Mughal Empire became very rich very quickly. The Mughal economy grew extremely rapidly. By land and sea, the Mughals traded all, sort, all sorts of extremely valuable goods around Asia and even into Europe, growing the, the Mughal economy at a great speed. Akbar built roads and had them patrolled to keep bandits away from trade caravans. He encouraged increased Mughal involvement in growing in, in growing global markets. And the needs of these global markets were terrific for the people of India, huge, vast exports were sent away from India with money pouring in as a result as people around the world had a huge demand for food that was grown in in the, on the subcontinent, for, for clothes that were manufactured there, for drugs like opium that were also produced uh, in India. And so Colossal amounts of money flowed into the Mughal Empire and and the people living there as a result, their quality of life improved, their standard of living only got better. And the Mughal Empire under Akbar firmly entrenched itself as, as an economic powerhouse. However, the integration of the Indian subcontinent in the global economy would, in time, have some pretty dire consequences, not just for the Mughal Empire, but for India more broadly. But again, we will uh, we will come to that in due course. To, to conclude the story of Akbar, he finally died in 1605, but he, uh, he left behind one of the wealthiest empires on the face of the earth. Its citizens enjoyed an unprecedented golden age brought about by this bloke. Uh, suffice to say, the Mughal Empire had done extremely well for itself under the rule of of Akbar and would remain a major power in world affairs for another century. And then after that, hmm, eh, not so much, but again, we'll get to it. For the next hundred years, the empire was ruled by just three emperors, all of whom had very long reigns, and this, of course, Helped to maintain the excellent position that Akbar had put the Mughal Empire in. Long-serving leaders generally lead to a higher level of political stability and generally to just better political outcomes. Um, However, for a few different reasons and despite the longevity of these three three emperors, cracks did begin to show across the 17th century uh, when the Mughal Empire was under the leadership of Emperors Jahangir, Shah Jahan I, and Orangzeb, respectively. Now, the first of these Jahangir, he was uh, he was Akbar's son. He took the throne in sixteen o five. And uh, hmm, how can we how can we be diplomatic about this fella? Uh, he had uh, he certainly had a strong interest in public health. He helped pave the way towards things like free hospitals for his people. So good work there. He was also a great lover of art and architecture. Many great works were, were created thanks to his patronage. He did a reasonable job on the battlefield. He fought enemies both locally and further afield. Uh, he fought internal rebels. He cracked down on the Portuguese when they overstepped the line. Uh, Europeans had been encouraged to trade freely in India under Akbar. But the Portuguese, they got a bit greedy. They seized a Mughal treasure ship. Wouldn't be the last time the Europeans did this. Episode 256, Henry Avery, get across it. But Jahangir, he showed the Portuguese uh, that he was not to be messed with. He marched into their trading towns. He locked up the people there and he shut down their churches. There were pretty significant recriminations for the overstepping that the Portuguese did. However, he still remained quite open to European commercial interests in India, receiving diplomats from the English East India Company. But again, more on that a little bit later. However, there were a couple of things that uh, Jahangir tended to focus on um, a little more strongly than, you know, public health measures and and cultural output and international diplomacy. Uh, Two things that he focused on mainly, in fact, uh, much to the detriment of his overall legacy, booze and opium. Jahangir was an absolute fiend for getting slunked up silly style. More often than not, he was just gonked out of his gourd, um, which is, as you can imagine, did get in the way of effective governance. Now, thanks to Akbar, the Mughal Empire, it did have a fair bit of room to fall, uh, even with someone as inept as Jahangir at the helm. But all the same, Jahangir did not do the Mughal Empire too many favours, and his general ineffectiveness and ineptitude as emperor meant that he left the empire far worse off than he found it. However, thankfully, his son, Shah Jahan I, who became Mughal emperor after Jahangir died in 1628, he was an absolute pistol of an emperor. Look at him go, just like his grandpa Akbar. There are a couple of things we can talk about when it comes to Shah Jahan. Uh, We talk about the fact that his successful military campaigning had the empire grow bigger than ever before. The fact that he grew the Mughals to the point that they could go to war with the Safavids even, and the Portuguese too, for good measure. Um, Or we could talk about the fact that he managed to reverse much of the damage that that his old man had done to things like the Mughal economy. He got money moving and growing once again. However, All of these aspects of the the rule of Shah Jahan pale in comparison to his most important and most famous contribution to the history of the Mughal Empire and to the history of India more broadly, because Shah Jahan, who was very interested in art and culture, had a specific and extremely strong interest in architecture. At no point before or after the reign of Shah Jahan was Mughal architecture more magnificent. He built the mighty Red Fort in Delhi. He built the beautiful Shah Jahan Mosque, obviously, in Thatta. But the crowning jewel in Shah Jahan's architectural legacy is, of course, the Taj Mahal, often described as a modern wonder of the world. The Taj Mahal, uh, found in the city of Agra, is a mausoleum that Shah Jahan built for his wife, Mumtaz Mahal. It took 20 years and 20,000 people to build it. Uh, And it is the most spectacular example of Indo-Islamic architecture in existence. And even today, it is visited by millions and millions of tourists every year. Now, I'm not going to go too deep on the Taj Mahal here because it will almost certainly feature in an episode of its own at some point. But suffice to say, it is an exquisitely decorated building, Uh, Surrounded by beautiful, stately gardens, a masterful achievement in human cultural expression, and it is undoubtedly Shah Jahan's greatest legacy. However, there was uh, another and rather more unfortunate aspect to Shah Jahan's leadership because he also undid a lot of the progressive policies of his grandfather, Akbar. And as a result of this, non-Muslims had a much harder time of it as the Mughal Empire became a less religiously tolerant realm. Additionally, on top of this, uh, Shah Jahan more or less emptied the Mughal treasuries with his lavish spending on all these building, building projects. While the empire still prospered economically, more money was being spent than was being made under Shah Jahan. Shah Jahan fell ill in 1657. He appointed his eldest son, Dara Shikoh as his heir. Um, Dara Shikoh was a big believer in religious tolerance and uh, in Hindu-Muslim syncretism. And had he come to the throne, maybe things would have gone differently on the religious tolerance front. But the third son of Shah Jahan wasn't a big fan of uh, the eldest son, Dara Shikoh inheriting. Didn't care too much for Dara Shikoh and his liberal nonsense. So while his old man was sick, this third son he gathered forces loyal to him. He went war. He went to war against his brothers, and then when his dad had recovered, uh, locked him up just for good measure. Can't be too careful. And this third son was of course Aurangzeb, the next Mughal emperor, a uh, a staunch Muslim with the support of conservative traditionalist Muslims throughout the empire. And again, someone we've actually met before, as we'll, uh, we'll get to in a sec. Aurangzeb, he took full advantage of his father's illness to seize power. And when Shah Jahan died in, uh, in 1658, Aurangzeb crowned himself emperor and then executed his brothers, just for good measure. Can't be too careful. And if Shah Jahan had, began, had begun to crack down on non-Muslims, it was nothing Compared to Orangzeb. Alert listeners will remember this. Uh, you'll remember Orangzeb from episode 241, History's Weirdest Deaths, part 3. Orangzeb was the one who sawed six in half or boiled them alive. Uh, it was not a good time to be a non Muslim, I can tell you this. Orangzeb instituted a series of, of, of quite harsh and oppressive taxes. These were taxes that mainly were aimed at the lower classes of Indian society, overwhelmingly Hindu. Uh, but also, on top of this, reinstate, it reinstated the jizya, this tax I mentioned before, this tax on non-Muslims. He was very heavy-handed uh, in the way that he, he dealt with poor Hindu subjects. He... Pressured them to convert to Islam. He willfully Islamicized many previously religiously tolerant or, or, or even secular aspects of Mughal governance. So, some pretty significant steps backwards, unfortunately, for the empire under Aurangzeb. Um, and his other legacies, they weren't all that much better for his empire in the long run either. Under Aurangzeb, the, the Mughal Empire did reach its largest territorial extent, and it was the largest economy, not just not just in the region, but in the entire world. Uh, it was during the reign of Aurangzeb that Henry Every pulled off what was perhaps the biggest act of piracy in history. Again, episode 256, get across it. Uh, he, he did this purely enabled by the vast riches that were stuffed into a Mughal treasure fleet, indicative of just how wealthy this empire was. But uh, Aurangzeb, um, he didn't let this money just sit around. He put it to to use. The world's largest economy built one of the world's largest armies. And uh, Aurangzeb, he led the empire to, as I say, its territorial apex with this colossal military. He went around conquering new territory, adding it to the Mughal collection. However, he didn't just fight as a conqueror, interestingly enough. He also had to fight against those seeking conquest of their own. Uh, specifically when the First Anglo-Mughal War kicked off in 1686. Uh, It was fought over a period of four years when the English East India Company came back, this time rather less diplomatically. They made a play to expand their presence on the subcontinent with a military invasion. And Aurangzeb gave the English the thrashing of a lifetime, sent them running with their tails between their legs However, of course, it wouldn't be the last time that the Mughals would hear from the East India Company. As you can probably guess, we will. I know I've said it a couple of times, but we will, we will get to that in due course. Anyway, Aurangzeb, uh, with a government that was more centralised and more autocratic than ever, he was undeniably a mighty conqueror. But he also ran his empire so far into the red that it was never able to recover. His military campaigns were victories on paper, but he bled the Mughal coffers dry, even with the taxes that were imposed on his people. And on top of that, these wars that he fought, they had enormous and I would say rather needless death tolls. So while Aurangzeb had a great time painting the map, um, his realm suffered mightily. And this is on top of the enormous amount of social and, and cultural tension that was generated by his administration's increasingly hostile approach to dealing with non-Muslims through taxation and conversions. And look, at the end of the day, historians still argue over Aurangzeb's reign. A mighty conqueror, certainly, but still the leader of a repressive and regressive regime. And quite honestly, the results of Aurangzeb's rule, they speak for themselves. Because when he died in 1707, it is impossible to deny that the Mughal Empire fell very swiftly into decline. Akbar had built a stable and secure and successful realm, and the Mughal Empire enjoyed a century and a half of unbridled prosperity as a result. An expansive road network and a standardised coinage system supported an enormous economy, huge. To put things in perspective for you, right, just just to give you a sense of how big the, the Mughal economy was, by the time we get to the 18th century, almost a quarter of all the manufacturing in the world was done on the on the Indian subcontinent that's how much money flowed into this to this part of the world that's how much money was generated by by the the agriculture and the industry of the Mughal Empire there was as I say so much demand throughout so much of the world for the goods that were produced in India cash crops, uh, food, clothing, spices, and of course, yes, as I said before, drugs like opium. These were sold at enormous profits throughout global markets everywhere. And conversely, the Mughal Empire was largely self-sufficient. It didn't have to import much from the countries to which it was exporting, meaning that while money flowed in to the Mughal Empire, not a lot flowed out. So as a result, the Mughal Empire became a colossal economic powerhouse, one of the wealthiest regimes in history. And this was the central reason behind its greatness, as as distinct, quite importantly, from empires made great through conquest. Akbar established a rich and prosperous and flourishing empire. However, while the while the three generations of emperors that uh, that followed him into the seventeenth century, while they avoided the total collapse of the empire, under them nonetheless, things slowly but surely began to fall apart. Because in time, the social and religious and cultural strife that was generated, uh, while this resulted in uh, an unhappy populace, There were also expensive and bloody wars going on that deeply affected the empire's prosperity. And so, as a result of this, in the wake of the death of Aurangzeb, the first half of the 18th century saw the Mughal Empire more or less go into freefall. Across the 17th century, the Mughal Empire had three emperors, all of them long-lived, all of them ruling for a long time. We talked about how this had a very positive impact on security and prosperity throughout the, throughout the empire, right? That that's just kind of goes without saying. When you have rulers that rule for a long time, there tend to be benefits that come along with that. Compare and contrast the three emperors of the 17th century to the 13 that the Mughals had in the 18th. So, if you want to talk about security, stability, prosperity, when you're going through emperors at the rate of one every, well, even more than one every 10 years, things aren't going to go that well for you. Arangzeb's successor, Azam Shah, he lasted three months before being killed by his brother in a power struggle. This brother, Bahadur Shah, he lasted a bit longer, but. Uh, He didn't do much good. His efforts to undo the damage that his father had done to the realm were largely in vain. He spent his four year reign repealing the worst of Aurangzeb's oppressive policies, but by now, it's no good. It's too late. Sensing the political weakness brought on by all of the turmoil at the top level of the imperial government, lower level regional leaders throughout the empire began to start doing their own moving and shaking, seeing an opportunity to expand their own power. The Mughal Empire fell into infighting and Anarchy, part of the long and slow process the realm went in ultimately falling to pieces. Bahadur Shah died in 1712. His successor, Jahandar Shah, didn't even last a year before being assassinated. And then the next few emperors were little more than figureheads. And they had a fair bit of turnover as well. There were four different emperors in 1719 alone. Four emperors in one year. One of them, Rafi Ud-Dajarat, he didn't even make it to the 100-day mark. Uh, the fourth of them, Muhammad Shah, he, he steadied the ship a little bit. He reigned for almost 30 years. But by this stage, the office of emperor was almost ceremonial. There were a pair of noblemen called the Sayyid brothers who were the ones who were really in charge. It was them who assassinated Jahandar Shah, for instance. And it was them who reduced the emperors that they put on the throne to to mere figureheads. The Sayyid brothers ruled the empire through their puppet, emperor, puppet emperors until 1722 when the last one was killed um and the this emperor I mentioned muhammad shah the one who ruled for 30 years he he did attempt to assert his imperial authority over the realm once the Sayyid brothers were out of the way but as i sort of I sort of said before it's too late it's too little too late the mughal empire was falling apart at the seams smaller parts of it broke away and became independent Uh, The neighbouring Maratha Empire or Maratha Confederacy, as it's also known, uh, it took advantage of the weakened Mughals to conquer vast swaths of territory and seize valuable trade routes that they'd set up. And then, interestingly, history repeated itself a little bit. Because the story of the Mughal Empire, right, it began in 1526 with a weakened government in India, the Delhi Sultanate, being invaded by a force from Persia, the Mughals. Well... 200 years later, in 1738, a weakened government in India, the Mughal Empire, was invaded by a force from Persia, the Afshanids. This time, when the Afshanids invaded, they didn't set up shop like the the Mughals had done. They sacked Delhi. They annexed a huge amount of land from the eastern part of the Mughal Empire and then packed their bags and, and went back east. But this, of course, weakened the Mughals even further. And caused more, smaller realms to split away from it, which of course only led to more infighting, more conflict and and more strife. So many different people are all fighting for the subcontinent. Big realms, little realms, all seeking a bigger piece of the pie, all scrabbling for a taste of the greatness the Mughal Empire had enjoyed throughout the 17th century. Some smaller states did manage to secure their independence from the Mughals, but... In many cases, they did so only very briefly, because now, perhaps spurred on by the turmoil and political chaos that had embroiled the Indian subcontinent this time, in the back half of the 18th century, guess who's back? Back again, ready to have another crack at properly getting stuck into India. It is not the English East India Company anymore, but now the British East India Company, which steadily began to invade and overtake all of these smaller realms, picking them off one by one and adding them to the colonial collection. The Carnatic Wars throughout the 1750s, the Bengal War in the 1760s, the British, they weren't being sent packing this time like they had been when Aurangzeb was in charge and through conflicts like these, they... Steadily increase the British colonial influence on the, Inti- on the on the on the Indian subcontinent, and it wasn't just the Mughals they were going after; they were eyeing off all of India essentially. So, to bring it back to the Mughals, now in in the 1760s, when a new Mughal emperor uh, Shah Alam took the throne, Shah Alam II, his desperate attempts to keep his empire uh, empire afloat were all completely in vain. In, in the face of enemies both local and international. By now, it's clear, the time of the Mughal Empire had come and gone. It was a shadow of its former self, now only in direct control of a small strip of territory to the northeast of the subcontinent, not really even an empire by any reasonable definition. So purely for the survival of his realm, Shah Alam II had to essentially vassalize the Mughal Empire to the larger Durrani Empire based to the east in in today's Afghanistan. But this arrangement barely lasted much longer than a decade. In 1771, the expansion of the Maratha Empire, the Maratha Confederacy, that saw them capture Delhi instead and in time take over the suzerainty of of the Mughals. So the once great Mughal Empire was now being horse-traded around between other sovereign states. It was more or less completely absorbed into the Maratha Empire by the 1780s, with the uh, with this bloke Shah Alam not much more than a figurehead. And while the Islamic influence on the Indian subcontinent is still felt, felt to this day, of course, the Hindu Maratha Empire returned to the days of Hindu self-rule and remained the dominant force in India as we head into the 19th century. But... If India was dominated by the Mughals in the 17th century and the Maratha in the 18th century, the 19th century saw a new power rise to ultimate supremacy across the subcontinent, the British. The Second Anglo-Maratha War saw the British East India Company crush the Maratha once and for all. They seized Delhi and they became the new suzerains of the remnants of the Mughal Empire. Shah Alam was a... Puppet of the Maratha, but his son and successor, Akbar Shah II, he was a puppet of the British. The British beat the Maratha in 1805. Akbar Shah II took the Mughal throne in 1806. And while he went on to quote unquote rule for 30 years, it really was at the behest of the British. A far cry from his namesake, the first Akbar, Akbar the Great, who had established this empire, Akbar Shah II had what was almost the complete opposite experience as a vassalised puppet ruler of a crumbling empire. The Mughal Empire was one of a great many colonial possessions of the East India Company, who throughout the first half of the 19th century grew in power and in wealth across India. Like the Mughals had before them, they expanded the territory they controlled and made a lot of money from the lucrative trade net networks across the subcontinent. But the difference here, the key difference between the way that the Mughals ruled India and the way that the East India Company ruled India was that the British siphoned away all of the wealth that was generated in India. They took it away to benefit Britain and the British Empire, unlike the Mughals, who settled themselves in India for the long haul. Now, both of these cases involved foreign conquest. Neither are particularly ideal for the people being conquered. But at the very least... The wealth stayed where it was generated under the Mughals, rather than being shipped off to London by the British. In any case, after a decline of a century and a half since the death of Aurangzeb, the Mughal Empire finally came to an official end in 1857. Throughout the first half of the 19th century, the Mughal Empire remained a vassal state essentially of the British East India Company and... uh, more or less was governed at the behest of the British. There was a level of autonomy that Mughal emperors had while subjects of the British, but a lot of it was lip service and it was British foreign and colonial uh, policy that, that overwhelmingly dominated Indian affairs during this time. But ultimately, the Mughal Empire would fade from existence altogether. It came to what was, it I say, its official end in 1857. In 1857, there was a great uprising of people across India, and uh, this uprising goes by many different names. The British referred to it with terms like the Indian Mutiny or the Revolt of 1857, uh, while Indians tend to use terms like the First War of Independence or the Great Rebellion. I'm going to take the clinical and uh, rather more cowardly middle ground here and take the somewhat more commonly accepted term Indian Rebellion of 1857 to talk about it. The Indian Rebellion of 1857 saw Indians across the subcontinent rise up against the British in response to, uh, well, all sorts of things, honestly. British social and political reform, uh, excessive land taxes, unhappiness about the treatment of India and Indians as a colonial possession more broadly – Lots of stuff went into this Indian rebellion, and it didn't just involve the Mughals. It was, uh, it was uh, something that took place across the entire subcontinent. However, the involvement of the Mughals right towards the, the very end of this regime was very important, because the last Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah II Zafar, he had inherited the throne from his dad, Akbar Shah, in, uh, in 1837. By this stage, the British had done a very good job of disempowering local rulers like the position of Mughal emperor. But Bahadur Shah, he did have one last crack at it. Despite the overwhelming political and military dominance of the East India Company throughout the subcontinent, in 1857, disgruntled Indians rallied around Bahadur Shah as the emperor of not just the Mughals, but of India as a whole. He was put forward by many rebellious factions as a leader for them all to get behind in the fight against the British, and so Bahadur Shah, he openly supported this rebellion and became one of its figureheads. Now, as I say, the Indian Rebellion of 1857, it went a lot further than the remnants of the Mughal Empire. There is so much to get across if we were to talk about the story of this rebellion properly. But it goes to show the lasting legacy of the Mughals when the very last of them was put forward as the unifying figure for Indian resistance against British colonial rule. However, it wasn't to be. There was no grand revival of the Mughal Empire, or any Indian Empire. The rebellion was crushed, and in 1858, Bahadur Shah II, the last Mughal Emperor, was sent into exile by the British East India Company. I will say this, though, he took the bastards down with him, because the British East India Company was also enormously disempowered in 1858, when the British government itself stepped in to administer its colonial possessions in India directly. This began the time of the British Raj, and as a result of this, the British East India Company was sidelined and ultimately dissolved. In its place in time, there would be a new imperial administration, not Mughal, not Maratha, but British When Queen Victoria was proclaimed as Empress of India in 1876, two years after the East India Company was, as I say, finally dissolved. As for the Mughal Empire, however, there was nothing left of it in 1857 onwards. At the conclusion of the Indian Rebellion, it essentially ceased to exist. Bahadur Shah was exiled, Mughal lands were directly administered by the British Raj, the Mughal Empire was consigned to the scrap heap of history after over 300 years. After a century and a half of prosperity and wealth, it slowly but steadily declined. And there's, there's no one single cause behind this. It was, it was a confluence of a lot of different factors, all of which played a part. Expensive wars and lavish spending resulted in economic decline. Continuing political strife over the succession of emperors after Orangzeb. Um, there was weakened central imp- imperial authority as bits and pieces of the empire broke away in the early 18th century. Excessive taxation uh, that exploited and upset, upset peasants in the lower, lower social strata. Ongoing cultural and religious tension throughout different levels of society. And of course, of course, A series of invasions, the Maratha, the Afshanids, and then ultimately the British. Across a century and a half, all of these factors combine to result in the ultimate collapse of a once great empire. An empire whose influence is still, nonetheless, very much felt in modern day India. While Islam, the religion of the Mughals, plays a smaller role in Indian society than it used to, especially since the partition of India and Pakistan, with Pakistan being a much more Islamic nation than India, the influence of this religion and the culture that came with it is very clear to see, just as it is in other nations that had a significant uh, significant Islamic population at various points throughout their histories, uh, Spain and Portugal, right? All of these nations have Islamic art and architecture that has survived all the way through to the modern era. The Mughals brought Islamic Persian culture to the subcontinent, and this has played a huge role in Indian history, and continues to, for that matter. The religious and cultural syncretism that Akbar attempted to entrench in his realm still plays a big part in modern-day Indian culture. India is one of the most religiously and, and culturally diverse nations on earth. Modern Indian art and architecture and culture and festivals and even cuisine still all bear the hallmark of of Indo-Persian influence brought on by the Mughals. But the time of the Mughals as a global economic powerhouse has come and gone, as has more broadly the time of empire on the subcontinent. However... The legacy of the Mughal Empire is still felt in India every single year when, on the 15th of August, India's Independence Day, the Indian Prime Minister hoists the national flag and addresses the nation to commemorate this anniversary. And in a way that really does show the lasting legacy of the Mughals on the modern state of India, the Prime Minister does this on the ramparts of of the mughal built Red Fort. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the... Mugh- well, it's the story of the Mughal Empire as best as I could get it into one episode. A lot of stuff was left on the cutting room floor for this one. And uh, a lot of these stories maybe we'll pick apart more specifically in future a- episodes. I could see us doing doing an episode on, uh, on on Akbar the Great, for instance. So I do want to talk about the Taj Mahal at one point as well. Plenty more Indian history to get, to get across. I'd love to hear your suggestions. So do get in touch. Half-assed history.net, use the contact form there. But I don't only really want to thank the people who got in touch to suggest topics like the Mughal Empire. There were so many of them. Thank you to all of them once again. I also want to thank all the people who have been getting in touch recently at the end of the year to let me know just how hard they've been going with half History throughout 2023. Uh, many people listen to the, uh, well, most most people actually, most of the, uh, the, the listeners of this podcast listen to the show on Spotify. And as a result, I've had a fair few emails from people letting me know uh, just how many minutes they have spent listening to me in my Tin Pot History podcast talking about who knows what. So I want to thank all the people who uh, who wrote into the show, sent me in screenshots from their Spotify rap, letting me know just uh, just how deep they'd gone this year. So many people: uh, Stefan Verhoefster, Relinda Dakes, um, Dave Barton, Zero Fire, AJ Taylor, Sparkly Heart, uh, Quibix, Ben Salisbury, Andy Zierin, Um, But most of all. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear if there is a listener who can beat this, right? Because a listener called Hanley, that's Hanley with three Ys, (coughs) sent me a screenshot, right? This wasn't just an empty claim. This is backed up. We've got the receipts. Hanley sent a screenshot indicating that they've listened to to this podcast over the last 11 months, right? For 23,695 minutes. That is 395 hours or 16 and a half days straight. Now, there are over 280 full-length episodes of this podcast. There are also, obviously, you know, 30 or so uh, shorter episodes, quarter hours history. But even if we generously say that each episode is an average of, what, 40 minutes long... That means that Hanley has listened to the entire back catalogue of Half Ass History twice over this entire year. Hanley, I salute you—one of the most dedicated listeners of this Tin Pot History podcast. If there is anyone out there who can beat twenty-three thousand six hundred and ninety-five minutes, I would like to hear from you. And even if you can't, I would love to see and uh, and hear um how much time you spent with this podcast what you've enjoyed uh it it really is so humbling so flattering to be such a big part of people's lives as an enjoyer podcast myself i know that they can be such a huge part of your weekly routine and um it really is very humbling to be part of yours week in and week out and i hope that i will be for a very very long time to come um i have no plans to pull back into uh, 2024. At this stage, uh, I want to only see the podcast grow. I've got a lot of ideas for stuff that I want to expand into beyond podcasting as well. I've already talked about stuff like books, um, and so half our si- hopefully, half our history will become an even bigger part of your life into the next 12 months. But do let me know uh, how uh, the podcast has treated you over the last 12 months, especially if you've got uh, some Spotify Wrapped uh, data to throw my way. I'd love to see that. But uh, again. Whether you're an old listener or a new listener, whether you're a casual listener or a rusted-on diehard fanatic like Handy Hanley and, and Ben Salisbury and AJ Taylor and Andy Zira and all the rest of them, uh, thank you. Thanks so much for spending a part of your week with me. And uh, again, long may it continue. Anyway, halfastitude.net contact form there. Patreon, T Public merch. Get in touch. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. This is going to be one of the longest episodes I've ever put out. But it is time to wrap it up and we're going to wrap it up as we do every week with a question post on reddit this one comes to us from redditor petestradomus perhaps a long-lost relative of nostradamus uh probably not though um Petra- Pet- petestradomus asks should it be india who is credited with the finding of america since they were there way before columbus